Our scripture passage this morning, if you couldn't tell by the song that we sang, is uh, Psalm 83. This is your pew Bible on page 922. The nice thing about uh, being a seminary student is that when you have to prepare a sermon for class, you get to try it out on your congregation first. So I have to preach this in class on Wednesday, so uh, you guys have to give me pointers, okay? Tell me if it's an A, a B, a C, after we're done this morning. Psalm 83, the psalmist says these words. A song, a psalm of Asaph. O God, do not keep silent. Be not quiet, O God. Be not still. See how your enemies are astir, how your foes rear their heads. With cunning they conspire against your people. They plot against those you cherish. Come, they say, let us destroy them as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. With one mind they plot together. They form an alliance against you. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites of Moab and the Hagrites, Gebal, Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the people of Tyr, even Assyria has joined them to lend strength to the descendants of Lot. Selah. Do to them as you did to Midian, as you did to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who perished at Endor and became like refuse on the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb. All their princes like Zeba and Zalmana, who said, Let us take possession of the pasture lands of God. Make them like tumbleweed, O oh my God, like chaff before the wind, as fire consumes the forest or a flame sets the mountains ablaze. So pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. Cover their faces with shame so that men will seek your name, O oh Lord. May they ever be ashamed and dismayed. May they perish in disgrace. Let them know that you, whose name is the Lord, that you alone are the most high over all the earth. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. A quick Google search of stories of persecuted Christians will pull up over 28 million results. The one I share with you uh, this morning is from Open Doors USA. It's a nonprofit Christian organization that equips persecuted believers in over 60 countries. This is the story. Imagine you live in Nigeria and your family was driven out of your village by violent Boko Haram extremists. Thankfully, after days of travel, you and your children finally reach a relief camp designed to assist displaced people. Tired and hungry, you join the line of families waiting for food. But as you reach the front of the line, your relief changes to disappointment. This relief is not for Christians, the person dispersing the food says flatly. The food is not for Arne people. Arne means pagan. And if you're not a Muslim, you're considered a pagan. Soon you learn the camp itself is also segregated. Muslims are housed in one area and Christians in another. 
In addition to being ineligible for food rations, you're also informed that Christians are not allowed to gather for worship in this refugee camp. There will be no church for Christians who are camping here. So who is Boko Haram? It means Western education is forbidden. The group has publicly defined themselves as people committed to the prophets teaching for propagation and jihad. They've been nicknamed Nigeria's Taliban. In 2013, Boko Haram began to focus their attacks on schools and churches. In 2013, the Boko Haram killed dozens of schoolboys. Later that year, they massacred 50 churchgoers in raids conducted for three consecutive Sundays. This was a buildup to the April 2014 attack where Boko Haram raiders kidnapped 276 schoolgirls. In 2016, Abu Musab al-Banawi was named the new Boko Haram leader. He announced a war against the West, who he accused of trying to Christianize Nigeria. Al-Banawi vowed to stop attacking neutral Muslims and threatened to solely focus on bombing churches and killing Christians. Here's my question. How should this refugee family Respond to such evil, running from Boko Haram and then not receiving proper care from these refugee camps? How should Christians who hear of this evil group, Boko Haram, respond? How should they pray? How should we pray? That's what we're going to be looking at this morning as we examine the prayer of God's people in Psalm 83 when they were surrounded by enemies. The theme this morning is, because of Christ, God hears our cry for help. Because of Christ, God hears our cry for help. And we're going to look at the psalm in three uh, different sections. The first is the silence of God, which covers verse 1. Second is the enemy of God, which covers verses 2 through 8 of the psalm. And lastly is the prayers, or the prayer of God's people, which covers verses 9 through 18. Before we get into the psalm, let's look a little bit of context. Many people wonder if the events described in Psalm 83 really happened. Was this an event in Israel's history? But one passage that's often looked to is 2 Chronicles 20, which describes a time during the reign of good King Jehoshaphat when a group of surrounding nations came against Israel for battle. Somebody came and told him, These people are coming to to fight Israel, to take our our land away. And so King Jehoshaphat gathers the people and he prays to God. And the prayer that King Jehoshaphat gives up to God, Yahweh, fits the mood of Psalm 83 very well. He proclaims that Yahweh is the ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations and mentions that these nations desire to drive out Israel out of their possession. Sounds a lot like Psalm 83, right? And closing his prayer, then he calls upon God to execute judgment on those who would seek to come against his people. And in this passage, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 14. Jehaziel then prophesies the word of the Lord to the congregation promising victory over these enemies without even having to lift their swords. Yet notice the identity of the one prophesying. 
We are told that he is a Levite of the sons of Asaph, a member of the group of Asaphite singers that David instituted to create music for worship in the temple. This leads many to believe that Jehaziel is the author of Psalm 83, the events of 2 Chronicles 20 being the inspiration for its creation. So then when the army went out into the wilderness to face the enemies in battle, they discovered that the Lord had caused these nations to fight amongst themselves until they were devoted to destruction, all helped to destroy one another, and none had escaped. It took Israel three whole days to carry away all the spoil, and they never had to even lift their sword. The similarity between these events in Psalm 83 leads many to believe that they're connected. I believe that the historical moment of 2 Chronicles 20 inspired the writing of Psalm 83, but the reason that the historical details are not a one-for-one match, particularly when it comes to the nations listed in Psalm 83, is that the writer of the psalm used poetic license in order for it to be more widely applicable and useful in corporate worship. So let's take a look at the psalm together, starting with the silence of God in verse 1. What's verse 1 say? O God, do not keep silent. Be not quiet, O God. Be not still. The psalmist here is representing the people of God. In fact, this is often a a psalm called a communal lament. And here he expresses a sense of the silence of God. Here are the people of God surrounded on all sides. In fact, the ten nations listed, if you would map them out, they would literally surround entirely the promised land. And the psalmist wants to hear from God. He wants God to say something. God, don't rest. Don't be still. Don't hold your peace. Have you ever felt like this? That you were in the midst of difficult situations and circumstances. You felt as if the whole world was crashing in on you. And you wondered where God was. Why isn't he doing anything? Why isn't he saying something? Why is he letting this happen? Maybe those Christian refugees in Nigeria were feeling this way. That God wasn't hearing their cry for help. Maybe you felt that way. And maybe you've even wondered if it's okay to feel that way at all. That maybe it's wrong. Or sinful. But God in his grace and his providence has ordained for these words to be put into the inspired songbook of his people. He had a son of Asaph write it down so that his people could sing it in the temple. In worship. Now God of course is innocent of all these accusations and charges. We're told he does not sleep or slumber. He's working when we are sleeping. He knows the number of hairs on our heads. He sees our getting up and our going down. He watches over us. But God does know that his people sometimes feel that he is silent in the midst of hardship and suffering. He knows that his people sometimes feel that he is sitting back as they are being surrounded by enemies who seek to devour them and blot them out. And so, in his love and mercy... He says to the inspired author of Psalm 83, write it down. I can take it. Write it down. Sing it to me. For I know what you are feeling. Even though it is not true, I know. And because I love you and I care for you, 
I myself have inspired these words that when you feel that way, you can sing them to me. You feel like God is being silent? Psalm 83 says we have permission to tell him. What about the enemy of God? Verses 2 through 8. Maybe you're wondering why I've described this as an enemy rather than enemies. Since a group of ten nations are listed as those who are coming against Israel. The reason for this is simple. The enemy described here goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. When God cursed the serpent, he made a promise. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. See, what's being described in this psalm is nothing other than the seed of the serpent coming against the seed of the woman. That's why this section of the psalm is describing the enemy of God and not the enemies of God. And let me point out a few important phrases to get this concept across. The first thing can be seen in verse 2. In verse 2, the psalmist tells us that those who hate you have lifted up their head. This is the word rosh. It's the same word used in Genesis 3.15. The NIVs translated it here as, See how your foes rear their heads. But the Hebrew there is actually a singular. And it functions to unify these enemies of God into an enemy of God and functions as the antithesis of what we see here in Psalm 83 when it says, they've come against those you cherish. When the Hebrew, that is the word treasured one. They've come against your treasured one. So do you see that the head of these enemies has come against the treasured one of God. This is the seed of the serpent coming against the seed of the woman. The psalmist will later in verse 5 use language like one heart or one mind, as NIV says, to describe their collective motive and intention. He even says that this enemy has cut a covenant. In the NIV, it translated as formed an alliance. In verse 5, form an alliance. Cut a covenant against God. Now this is a unique phrase found here only in all of the Old Testament. God has made a covenant with his people, but the unique phrasing of Psalm 83 here when it says they make an alliance against you is that covenants are usually made with someone, not against someone. God has made a covenant with his people. This enemy, Satan, has made a covenant against God. This conglomeration of nations has one head, one mind. They've made a covenant against God. They are the head of the serpent seeking to strike the heel of the seed of the woman. For what reason? Because if the enemy of God can cut off the line of Israel in order to prevent the Messiah, the promised one, the true king, the savior from coming into this world, then they can destroy the plans of God. So this is more than just warring nations. This is spiritual warfare. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. But you may still wonder what this psalm has to do with you, a Christian today. 
What Israel and all these enemy nations means to a 21st century believer who's living in the Western world. If you've read the book of Revelation recently, you may remember a scene in which the souls of martyred Christians are seen under the altar in heaven. Do you remember what they said? Do you remember what their song was? How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? They're singing the same song. How many more need to be slaughtered before you move, God? Before you no longer remain silent? See, Christians all over the world are facing the same situations as these Nigerian believers we've talked about. They're running for their life from those who desire nothing but to see them blotted from the face of the earth. And how are we to pray for these persecuted believers all over the world? How are they to pray in the midst of of that persecution, surrounded by enemies on every side, being run out of their homes, not being able to find a refuge, even from their own countrymen. Let's look at the prayer of God's people in verses 9 through 18. In the remaining verses, we see a prayer given to us by God from his very own mouth, an inspired prayer for persecuted believers. What we have here is what Legan Duncan calls a warlike prayer, an imprecation, a petition for God's divine curse on his enemies. In verses 9 through 12, the psalmist recalls historical events in the life of Israel, largely from the book of Judges, almost as if to remind God, look what you've done in the past. Look how you've moved in the past. Look how you've not remained silent in the past. These victories then become the model for what the psalmist is imploring God to do now in the face of this new enemy. And then in verses 13 through 15, the psalmist uses what we often call natural disasters to express what kind of judgment he is calling upon God to enact. God blow them away like dust in the wind. God consume them like the blazing forest fires in California. God, destroy them like the hurricanes that have wrecked the East Coast. Maybe that helps you to get an image, a picture of what's being described here. But what are we to do with verses 16 through 18? Verses 16 through 18. Cover their faces with shame so that men will seek your name, O Lord. May they ever be ashamed and dismayed. May they perish in disgrace. Let them know that you, whose name is the Lord, that you alone are the most high over all the earth. Are these curses, given with the psalmist's desire, being God, totally annihilate them, condemn them, destroy them? Or are these curses given with the psalmist's desire being conversion, if possible, and destruction if not. The confusion comes from the tension between the finality of the psalmist's language and the outcome he seems to want. Look at verse 16. It says, Cover their faces with shame so that they may seek your name. 
Verse 17 says, May they ever be ashamed and dismayed so that they may know that you alone are Yahweh in the original Hebrew. You see, the answer here is not an either or, but a both and. Listen to what one writer says. This psalm blends at least two seemingly opposing requests for divine response. Destroy them as the request begins in verses 9 through 11. Or at least terrify and shame them as verses 13 through 17 seem to describe. And cause them to seek you in covenant relationship. And to know, acknowledge your universal sovereignty, verse 16 and 18. Two requests are blended into one. Either is okay, for either will accomplish the deliverance of God's people at God's discretion whether through destruction, frustration, or conversion. It is either God convert them or God go get them. Both sides of this request for deliverance stretch our sensitivities beyond our comfort level. For we who are far from the scene of such severe persecution have a natural aversion to prayers for the destruction of our and God's enemies. I believe that's true. In some sense, we are to love our enemies. And those who may be enmeshed in the midst of such persecution might find it difficult to plead for the conversion of their oppressors. Both stretch us. Both are right. And the results in either direction are up to God. The prayer is ours. The response is his. End quote. Let me put it this way. What's being said here in Psalm 83 is, Whether God saves them or slaughters them, whether he kills them or calls them, is not up to us. We as the people of God are called to pray. Even in times of great persecution, for God, the judge of all the earth, to do what is just and right. But, question might be asked, how exactly should the gospel inform our interpretation and use of Psalm 83? How should the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of our Savior enlighten our use of psalms containing curses, imprecations? Does not the revelation of the grace and mercy of God in Christ Jesus reveal to us that these curses should be done away with, as some people say? That those who pen these statements did not speak the word of God, but rather their own petty emotions? The answer is seen in the picture of the cross. When Christ died on Calvary as our substitute, he revealed that wrath and grace are not as opposed as our human and finite minds seem to think. Think about it. Christ on the cross receiving the imprecation of God. Whoever hangs on a tree is cursed. That's what God's word says. But Christ on a cross, receiving the curse of God and crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? has brought about the salvation of all who believe. Grace. Wrath. Think about it, even in the sacraments. We have in the waters of baptism a beautiful and wonderful picture of God's grace. But it also contains a warning, does it not? 
If you believe upon Jesus Christ, that water represents the washing away of your sins. But if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, you become a covenant breaker, and that water represents the judgment of flood. Think about the Lord's Supper as we're preparing to partake this morning. Those who participate in faith, it becomes a means of grace by which we are strengthened in the Lord. Those who partake in an unworthy manner bring judgment upon themselves. The Westminster Larger Catechism asks in question 45 these words, How does Christ execute the office of a king? We believe in the threefold office of Christ, prophet, priest, and king. The answer given is quite meaningful concerning the use of Psalm 83 in the church today. This is what it says. Christ executes the office of a king in calling out of the world a people to himself and giving them officers, laws, and censors by which he visibly governs them and bestowing saving grace upon his elect, rewarding their obedience and correcting them for their sins, preserving them and supporting them under all their temptations and sufferings, restraining and overcoming all their enemies, and powerfully ordering all things for his own glory and their good, and also in taking vengeance on the rest who know not God and obey not the gospel. You see here that both the function of calling the elect to himself and taking vengeance on the rest are listed as aspects of Christ's divine office as king. So just as there is hope for conversion and judgment extended in the psalmist's imprecation, so in the gospel there is salvation and condemnation. Christ's complete and finished redemptive work is a cataclysmic, world-impacting event. In it, he accomplishes the salvation of the elect and the eternal condemnation of those who will not believe. And it's not a surprise that Psalm 83 is often seen as the second part of Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, we hear of nations also that rage against God, and God laughs in the heavens because he set his king in Zion. This king is called God's son and has promised the nations and the ends of the earth as his possession. The rulers of these nations are then warned to kiss the son, for his wrath is quickly kindled. This son is none other than the ascended Christ, sitting at the right hand of the father, father, functioning in his office as king. The question then is not whether this king, Christ, will rule, but in which way he will rule. Will he bend the knees of the nations by converting them or conquering them? Once again, the answer is not an either or, but a both and. Right now in history, Christ is both bringing his sheep into the fold and damning those who will not obey the gospel. The promised son who sits upon the throne of David will be victorious at the end of human history. For God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. This should be a comfort then to those who have willingly kissed the Son and a wake-up call to those who continue to live in rebellion as enemies of God. 
Christ is the protector and defender of his people. It is through the blood of Christ that we can enter into the Holy of Holies with confidence to present our requests to the Father. It is in the name of Christ that the prayer of Psalm 83 is to be lifted up to the throne room of God on behalf of persecuted Christians. It is through the cross of Christ that we are told to never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Romans chapter 12, verse 19. It is because of Christ that God hears our cry for help. The church today can and should sing and pray Psalm 83 with confidence. Not because the psalm itself creates the result desired, but because the psalm is directed to the God who is most high over all the earth. The God who took on flesh and tabernacled among us. The God who died upon the cross for our sins was resurrected three days later, ascended to sit upon the throne at the right hand of the Father and will come again to judge the living and the dead. Because of Christ, we now have the comfort that is described to us in question and answer 52 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which says these words. In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me, he will cast his, all his, and my enemies into everlasting condemnation. But he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the words of Psalm 83. We pray, Lord that we can hear them, be comforted by them, and know that you have given us the words to pray for those who are surrounded on all sides by enemies. You have given us the words to pray against those who would seek to come against your church and destroy her and to kill her. You've given us the words to say that we might bring all these things, Father, to you, knowing that you are the most high over all the earth, that you are the judge who will do what is right. And we can trust. We can trust you. The Lord, through your Son, Jesus Christ, you may convert the nations. Where you may judge and condemn the nations. Whatever it may be, Lord, we trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray these words. Amen.